Hello, folks. This is your host, Tammy Tucky, and you are now listening to the Tierra Talk Show. We bring you rare interviews with the makers of Disney magic. Whether they be singers, actors, Imagineers, animators, they have all made their mark on the Disney name. Be sure to check out the show notes, other episodes, contests, our social media pages from Facebook to Twitter, and more on our official website at www.thetierratalkshow.com. All guest opinions are theirs and theirs alone and do not represent the opinions of the Tierra Talk Show or the host. The Tierra Talk Show is not associated with the Disney Company. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. And from all of us here at the Tierra Talk Show, have a hoop de doo day. Pumpkin, extend with me. We'll be raising suns galore. Inconceivable. Each built six foot four. I'm excited to welcome this week's Tierra Talk Show guest, actor Burke Moses, to the show. Welcome, Burke. Hi, Tira. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. It's always been a big fan of Beauty and the Beast, so really lovely to speak with somebody who was in the original Broadway cast. But right. before we jump in really quickly, I'd love to hear about your beginnings in the entertainment industry that led up to your role as Gaston, because it's always interesting to hear how people do summer stock, or they find it earlier in life, maybe at age five, they just they love to dance and sing. So what was what was that beginning moment for you that you'd love to be on the stage? You knew it. Uh, well, unlike most people in the musical theater uh, industry, uh, I did not participate in any kind of theater in grammar school, in junior high school, high school, anything like that, even in early college. And uh, I was an art major at a uh, university in Missouri, and I th- used to sing in the shower. I'd like to sing in the shower. And um, so I took, a, uh, I took a, a group singing course as an elective. It seemed pretty easy, eh? Or whatever. And um, uh, so, you know, we got, we got there and we all had to learn an Italian aria and then come in the next week and singing, which was a very nerve-wracking experience. And uh, they said, who wants to go first? Now, I volunteered because I didn't want to sit there and stew in my, my nervousness while everybody else sang. So I got up. And I sang this song called La Chatemi Moriere, which I think that it's like a, the lyrics are like death, dying death, very, very serious piece. And, you know, I'm holding on to the piano for dear life. My legs are shaking. It sounded nothing like um, it did in the shower. It's just, it was horrible. And so I finished and with my tail between my legs, went back to my seat and there was this girl next to me and she was looking at me wide-eyed with mouth agape and I looked at her I said yeah I know that was terrible and she said no it was really good and then she broke out in tears crying and I didn't understand what was going on until other people started to get up and they were just terrible they were all just pretty much terrible and that's how I found out I could sing better than most people and uh, so I mean you know my second semester was doing my own nightclub act practically. And then um, I didn't, you know, I was taking, I, I didn't really know what I was going to do. I went to another school in Boston. And while in Boston, I saw this uh, this advert, advertisement in the uh, arts trade paper, um, which basically said it was an open call for the new Franco Zeffirelli movie called Endless Love with Brooke Shields. And so I, I thought, I'll, I'll go. I'll go to this call. The, uh, it, it, it said no experience necessary. All you had to be was uh, beautiful, charming, charismatic, and intelligent. And I thought, well, <laughs> that's me. So I go there. And there are thousands of people there. 
and uh, we we went in a hundred at a time after hours of waiting. Went in a hundred at a time, and I didn't. They didn't take me. They didn't do anything. We were in and out of seconds. But there was a casting director there from New York, and uh, he was casting West Side Story. And I uh, I thought uh, I, I I he said you you know you look like you'd make a good Tony. I said well I've done the part, which wasn't true at all. I I had learned to sing off impersonating the West Side Story album, Larry Curd on the West Side Story album. And uh, two weeks later, I was standing on a Broadway stage auditioning for Leonard Bernstein. And I didn't get the part, obviously, and, and cracked horribly on Maria, because I'm not a tenor. But uh, the experience was so exciting that I thought, I want to be an actor. And that's how I got into the business. And then I just auditioned for uh, schools and eventually went to Carnegie Mellon. And what were the initial auditions like for Beauty and the Beast? Because from what I heard originally, a lot of people were very unsure and uncertain that it would be a success and 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 it wasn't very well I guess it wasn't as received well from the Broadway community because they didn't know how Disney would be able to interpret something so beautiful well I have to go back a little further uh I had been looking at this I saw the movie and was absolutely taken by it and I saw this part of Gaston I said I want to play that part and I thought this show's coming in and I bugged my agent about for two years, and I was down in Atlanta doing a streetcar named Desire. And I get this call asking me to, uh, if I want to replace on Broadway, replace this Sky Masterson on Broadway. And I, I asked my agent, yeah, we have you heard anything about Beauty and the Beast before we sign up? And she just got angry at me. She goes, there is no project. There's no project at all. Beauty and the Beast is not on the board. So she convinced me to take the Broadway job, which was a great thing because I worked with great people. And three days later, after taking the job, I get a call from casting director Jay Bender asking me if I want to do, be a part of a reading for a new Disney show called Beauty and the Beast. And he said, there's like five people in the country that can play this part, Gaston, and you're three of them. And I just wanted to kiss him right there. And then I went, oh, wait a second. When does the production start? And he said, October. And I had just signed a contract for March for a year. So Disney had to buy me out of that contract. And they eventually did, which was amazing. And uh, uh, at the final audition, I was there with three other guys were up for me. And there was 10 different bells. And, uh, um, and I got to read with Susan Egan. And eventually the two of us got it, thankfully. But you're right. Uh, broad, the Broadway community was... Uh, as well, you know, welcomed us with elephant guns. And then we did our first preview, which was this massive, massive uh, hit in Houston. And we uh, sold it out, extra thing, extra week. And uh, we were having a ball, but the technical aspects of the show were I, overwhelming. They were just overwhelming. We spent seven weeks in technical rehearsal, 10 days just on Be Our Guest, where, during which time I saw every movie in Houston playing. And uh, just the costumes were an absolute nightmare. Uh, Terry's costume, Terry Mann, who plays the Beast, his costume took six hours for him to get into it the first time. And then when he got on stage, I mean, it was the most incredible costume I've ever seen to date. Uh, but this, he couldn't move in it. He, in, 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 it really covered his face, so he couldn't, he couldn't act, basically. He turned sideways and you couldn't see his face. And the, uh, the, the, the people playing the objects were having a nightmare with these costumes. So although it was a ball, it was just, you know, we had to figure out all the problems that 
you know, the tours later did not have to deal with. And that happens in every show. But our show was, was te a, a technical model. It was gigantic. Deal. I mean, after yeah. the first week, Gary Beach could not lift his arms because these, these fire flames, the flame devices he had in his hands were so heavy. I mean, later they made them out of titanium and they were very light or lightish. But, uh, you know, it, it, that was it. I remember for me, I had this leather costume that I just had to work in like a, like a new baseball mitt. And it just chafed me under my arms. It was horrible. But uh, for me, playing a human being, it was the, it was the least of, I, I, you know, I, I could not complain. Particularly uh, in the case of Terry, who was just braving it bravely. I, I thought he was he was truly extraordinarily dealing with this process of work, making this uh, horrible, hairy, hot costume workable. Susie, Susie, I mean, Susie and I had had this number me, which uh, the way we staged it could be uh, extraordinarily uh, dangerous for her. Not that I'd kill her, but that she, that she might, you know, might rip her arm out of her socket because I'm grabbing her all, you know, grabbing her and pulling her toward me and. Uh, and uh, but she's extraordinarily graceful and uh, real, you know, not only has an excellent sense of comedy, but she's so graceful on stage. And uh, it was really a ballet. And the two of us were, were good physical partners in that way. And I, I thought, you know, that was that was very important just for the longevity of, of our performances, particularly hers, because I don't think she could really hurt me too much up there. But you know, <laughs> I, I, I literally could rip her arm socket out or, or bruise her badly. But, you know, that was just part of it. We, we worked very well together. And playing the Disney villain, you probably get a lot of response from the audience during the show and afterwards. Is there anything most notable that comes to mind during a performance and then at the stage door? Well, the most magical performance I've ever been involved was the first preview of Beauty and the Beast at, um, in Houston. Uh, it's, it's hard to describe how, what a wreck the show was, but you know, the, uh, the night prior, it took us four and a half hours to go, get through the show. We were constantly start stopping and starting. And then, so, you know, we go to the next night, we've got a full house and we're walking out as though going to our grave, knowing that we're going to stop innumerable times and wondering if the audience is going to put up with it. And magically everything that night went perfectly absolutely perfectly. The ovations were incredible. I'd never heard anything. I came off my bow and there was this roar that I had never heard in my short performance career up to then. And then all of a sudden I took a bow while they were roaring and then half the audience hissed me. And so I stood up with a grimace on my face and acted as though I was going to give them a backhand, at which point there was a massive laugh. And, and then I pulled back and I looked over at Gary Beach and gave him a wink. And that kind of came to be a, a thing during the show that it just happened that night and then started happening over and over again, which is very much like the pantomimes in uh, London during the Christmas season where the audience hisses the, uh, hisses the, uh, uh, the villain and takes part in the show. So I thought that was uh, kind of interesting. And how long were you on the show for? Was it like six months or an entire year that you got to do the entire the show on Broadway? Well, you know, I was involved with this reading that I told you about. That lasted uh, two two weeks. Then we began rehearsal in I'd say October, I believe, of '93, and then we got to Houston somewhere around December. Then we ran that until January, and then we went to Broadway rehearsal. We opened in '94 in April. 
I stayed with that a year, and then they took all of us out, uh, or most of us, most of the leading members of the cast, out to Los Angeles, where I then did, I believe, another six months in Los Angeles. And then I was off for like a year or so, and they called me up and they asked me if I wanted to do the West End, and I've, I've always wanted to work on the West End. And so I got to go to London, and I was there for nine months, or almost a year. And you've done plenty more since Beauty and the Beast. Uh, what other shows have you done that our listeners can probably see if there's uh, any uh, B-roll tape that some of the theaters have released online or something? Because I, I just adore your voice, and I well, love seeing I, videos of, of you performing. Um, well, after Beauty, I was uh, hired to replace Brian Stokes Mitchell and Kiss Me Kate, and that was that was one of my, my favorite experiences because uh, I got to work with, not only I worked with Marin Maisie and then later Carolee Carmelo, who, both of whom I adore, and they're just so talented. But I got to work with Michael Blakemore. And if had you asked me in college if I could do a show on Broadway, what would it be? I would have said without doubt uh, to play uh, Fred Graham, who also is Petruchio, in Kiss Me Kate. And one day I'm in Cleveland doing a show and I get a call saying, do you want to uh, be the lead in Kiss Me Kate? And it was one of those rare times where your dream uh, coincides with reality or actually comes true. Uh, another of my, my favorite projects was uh, Sound and Music up in Toronto, which was the uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber version that had played in London and was the first to uh, use reality show television casting on a uh, show called How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? And the gal who won it in London went on to win the Evening Standard, became sort of a big star. And, and uh, the one they found in uh, Canada was this uh, lovely girl, uh, Alicia McKenzie, and she was a girl, she was like 22 years old with no experience whatsoever, and she was phenomenal on opening night, and it was, it was perhaps the most beautiful production I have ever been a part, and uh, uh, so those would be the two that truly stick out, although I've had wonderful, you know, recently I, I did Molly Brown with Beth Malone, the Dick Scanlon's revision out in Denver, I just loved working with Dick and Kathleen uh, Marshall again and, uh, and just fell in love with Beth Malone, every, as everyone does. Uh, that was wonderful. Or, or City of Angels uh, with Darko Tresnak up in, uh, up in uh, Goodspeed, which I loved that. Also, I had a lovely time up there doing uh, a revision of Seven Brides. I love doing revisions of musicals. I think it's fascinating when you take an old an old chestnut and, uh, you know, shining up anew. But that, those, are my, those, well, those would be my favorite projects since. And, and you're an author. You wrote a book. Can you talk a, a little bit more about that? Well, when I made my Broadway debut, right before I made my Broadway debut with, in Guys and Dolls, I spent five days with Jerry Zaks. And uh, Jerry Zaks uh, is a real stickler when it comes to craft and how to say a line of dialogue and how not to say a line of dialogue. And I really didn't know anything, know much about that. I, you know, you, you sort of pick up things, but nobody ever said, no, don't do it this way, do it this way. You know, usually it's about feelings and emotions, which there's no facts involved. And so he taught me this one trick, very easy trick that he calls pass the ball. It's also called the up inflection or uh, uh, checking in for response with your scene partner, demanding response, etc. cetera. Uh, and I applied this to my work. And opening night, I had the most relaxed performance of, of, of my career then, which was about 10 years old. And I noticed that, you know, Nathan, I'm working opposite Nathan Lane, Faith Prince, two Tony winners, and they're doing the same thing. And I started 
looking at other things they were doing, things like, and, and that skilled actors and shows I've done since were all skilled actors follow basically the same rules, which was basically craft, stuff like picking up your cues, driving through dialogue, uh, understanding some of the, uh, the intricacies of comedy, which are, is often like science, uh, people talk about as though it's physics, you know, don't move in the last, toss the setup line up. And I started re looking at the difference between people who worked all the time, whether they were in the ensemble or as uh, leading players, and people who struggled, particularly people coming into the business. And although there are three things that they have, experience, talent, and persistence, three things you can't really teach. The people at the top all have crafts. They consistently follow it. And as you go down the pyramid from Broadway into tours into top regional houses and down to summer stock and amateur theater, the less craft musical theater people have when it comes to speaking dialogue. And these rules, these rules of craft, which is basically speech, can be utilized in song and dance and everything. They're, they are the foundation of acting. Yet few people know it. So, you know, I, this happened to me. And, you know, I used these a uh, couple of these rules and, as Gaston. For the first time in my career, I got these stellar reviews. And I, you know, I was a bit of an idiot, but not being too big of an idiot. I thought, well, I want to know more about this old school craft stuff. So I went over to the drama bookstore, which has every book on acting. I paged through every book, and there was no book on it. It was just information that you would have to find in, you know, a page here and a page there and somehow know it was the most important thing in acting. And so I thought, well, I'm going to write a book, but I first have to figure out what I'm doing. And that took me about 15 years to find out, you know, to write this book. And it was a, you know, it was a thing of passion. I knew I was going to do it since I was 33 years old. And then while I was up in Toronto, I began to write it and began to teach. And uh, after many, many versions, I came up with a final product now, which I think is very good and I believe is essential reading for anyone who wants to uh, get in this business. And I will provide a link to the book below hey, in the show much. notes below so our listeners can go ahead and check it out and buy a copy for themselves. I know I'm going to get a copy <laughs> and well, add it to my library. Get it in print or an ebook, uh, whatever. But, uh, you know, one of the things about, I'm, I'm assuming a lot of your listeners are, are musical theater um, students and uh, one of the you just and when you're looking at the business you've got to look at the numbers there are not just millions of singers there are hundreds of millions of people who can sing there are millions of people who know how to dance but how many people who know how to sing and or dance also know voice and speech also have voice and speech facility and the bottom line is there are very few. We're talking about less than 1%. And usually, you know, the people who do it well, there are more jobs than people who can sing, dance, and speak dialogue. Everybody thinks of this thing, the triple threat, you know, acting, singing, dancing. But acting, you know, you, you act when you sing and dance. But you don't necessarily have to sing and dance in order to act. Acting is not one of three different uh, uh, skills in musical performance, but the umbrella skill over like nine different skills, movement, showmanship, comedy, drama, voice, and speech. And voice and speech is the one thing that uh, most musical people, do performers, do not spend enough time on. And, but that's where the people who work, they, you, know, you look at almost any Broadway gypsy, and not only do they would be able to sing and dance well, but almost always do they know how to say a line of dialogue. Not as well as perhaps Nathan Lane, Mm -hmm. But they know how to say it. Just a competent job. 
competence in speaking dialogue is the way to work and is the way to get find work and work constantly in this business. Well, to close our interview, we have three Disney-themed questions I always ask right. our guests. Okay. So we'll start with the Donald one, which is, as a child, what Disney film was one of your favorites to see in the movie theater? Ooh. Um, well, you know, I grew up in the 60s and the 70s, but I remember laughing, watching uh, the chase in uh, 101 Dalmatians between the dogs and the two thieves who are trying to uh, grab the puppies. I, I, that, that's the one that kind of uh, sticks out, 101 Dalmatians. And our goofy question, not including any of the Beauty and the Beast cast, but what Disney character do you think would be your best friend if you met them in person? Uh, yeah, I must admit, I'm, I'm going to go with the goofy there, uh, because I, <laughs> my brother and I used to... Uh, kind of walk around the house singing hot dogs, hamburgers, spaghetti, meat and pie, chicken, peppers, take them to the sky, which I believe was in, uh, which was in, uh, 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 the one with the giant, the giant, the Jack and the Beanstalk. Yeah. yeah. Beanstalk, <laughs> right. Where he's talking about food, all the food that they'll get. So he, <laughs> Goofy always seems like a, uh, would be a fun sidekick. And our Mickey question, if I asked you to name any Disney song at this very moment, what immediately comes to mind? Feed the birds, top in the bag. I just think that's one of the most beautiful songs that uh, that team ever, ever produced. Uh, uh, you know, I just, I just think uh, that, that's, that's perhaps my favorite. Well, thank you again for appearing on the show, Burke. And I hope that we see you and hear more from you, whether it be a new book or a new show, you're more than welcome to come back on the show in the future, and we'd Thanks love to so talk much. more. <laughs> okay, thank you, Tiara. Thank you so much for having me.